Welcome to the Drive Time in the Morning podcast. This is your host, Ray Ortega, CEO and founder of Grata Software, where we partner with companies to build innovative technologies on the cloud platforms. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Drive Time podcast. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, ready to build process. Uh, when you're ready to get to your MVP, I know previously we had a conversation with Donna where we talked about the user interface, user experience. Uh, we talked about the design. Um, and now we've kind of gotten past that point of kind of coming up with your idea, building your, your prototype using a tool. Um, such as uh, Adobe XD or something like that. And then now you're at that point where you really need to um, really build the product, at least the the minimum viable product, the product that's going to first launch out to your market space uh, to start getting some client feedback and figuring out if this is something that they want to actually use. So one of our steps in the consulting framework is that we manage resources when it comes to project initiatives, when it comes to building a product um, you know, up to the MVP phase or even after the MVP phase. So we've had a vast experience in working with remote workers and U.S. Uh, contractors and abroad, um, and uh, and it's just a, a catalyst for this podcast of what we're going to talk about. A lot of the information that you're going to hear is going to be from our personal experience, um, what we've done in the past or what we've dealt with in the past, and maybe we can shed some light as to the kind of path that you need to take in order to get, get through this. Um, I'm not going to lie if I would say that I'm not biased to the fact that I would rather you hire someone like us uh, to do the work, but if you can't, if it's not in your, your wheelhouse as far as uh, cost-wise, then let's, you know, we're just going to provide you some information and hopefully we'll get you going um, and get you uh, headed in the right direction. So what we're going to do in this conversation is we're going to actually compare onshore and offshore resources it pertains to, you know, your cost, um, the pros and cons, uh, also how it, how you manage those resources. And we'll have some just key things to keep in mind when you are working with contracted help or onshore, offshore, or even companies like ourselves. Um, so, so we're going kind of in that direction. And so the first question I always get, you know, when I talk to a potential customer about building a, a minimum viable product or even building a product in general, the, you, after all the discussion about what the product's going to do and the kind of concept behind it, the, the very next question we usually get, obviously, is cost. It's the biggest thing, right? Um, everybody has an idea, but when it comes time to actually paying to build, have it built, that tends to be the biggest caveat that gets it dead in the water. Several times we've had some great ideas come across our desk and unfortunately the 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 person or persons didn't have enough funds to be able to make it for real. And in no matter what kind of cost structures we provided, it just wasn't feasible. Um, you kind of have to think about costs right off the bat. It's very important because any product that you build, anything that you build, you're going to have to pay for something. Um, the first thing you have to do though is you have to basically assess um, what kind of team you're going to put together. You do have the options of, of going with contractors locally or you have onshore and offshore. Um, the thing is you have to first determine like what kind of person you want to bring in when it comes to the actual engineering aspect of the application. So you have you know software engineers and you have app developers. Now you probably don't know the difference between both so I'm going to explain a little bit of it. So a software engineer is more like a high level thinker. They're, they're a developer in a sense but they also have more of a holistic a knowledge of the application of building a, a software technology from the architecture to the infrastructure and to the actual coding aspect of it. Um, software engineers are far more expensive because of that aspect. They're more of an architect uh, in, in the larger scheme, scheme of things. Versus an app developer is specifically coding to perform a specific task to get a specific job done. Um, and so an app developer tends to, you know, they usually are the type of person you would hire 
if you already know exactly what you want and how it's going to be architect and how it's going to work, you just basically need them to just code and to put and make the application work. Um, where a software engineer is kind of the person you can interact with and say, okay, I want this to work like this. What kind of structure should we use? What kind of technology should we follow? Um, and this person has, like I said, a more holistic view. When it comes to money, software engineers tend, according to Indeed, the price for a software engineer currently, the average uh, going rate, is about $101,000 year salary. Okay, and then if you're looking for an application developer, they're more of like an $84,000 a year salary. Now, these are just numbers, the average numbers that are that you find in Indeed. Um, you know, they obviously could be different in different markets, but this is the in, this is the average in the U.S. Um, so roughly when it comes to per hour, um, which a lot of times when you're looking for a contractor, you're looking for a pro per hour uh, option. And the and the per hour usually runs you about $100 an hour, a little about $150 an hour for a software engineer, um, where you can get an application developer for 80 to 100. So again, it all depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for someone who's going to kind of take over that CIO role and be kind of the guy that's going to help you architect and, and put together the, the engineering of your product, then that would be a more expensive ask, you know, than, a, than an application developer who's just building exactly what you asked for. Okay, so for smaller markets, now, you know, there's a place called Upwork that uh, we've actually used in the past to find really good talent. Um, and you can find in the smaller markets uh, in the U.S., you, you could get a developer or a software engineer for 50 to $60 per hour. Um, and that's usually in the smaller markets when I'm talking about like Oklahoma or like a, somewhere where the, the market's not like a New York City or San Francisco. When you go to the larger cities, you tend to have to pay more. It's just the way it works. Um, smaller markets, they tend to have better living expenses, uh, better living uh, accommodations. Um, you know, houses are not that expensive. Cost of living is very low. So what they tend to do is they tend to charge, you know, relative to their living, to their world, essentially. And you get a better rate that way. So when you're doing it offshore, there's different environments of offshore that give you different rates. You usually find like in a Russian uh, in the in Russia, like Ukraine or Belarus, you usually find developers for 30 to 50 dollars an hour on Upwork. And that's a good rate. That's a very handsome rate, actually, um, for them. Um, they actually make good money there. The, the misconception about people when they look at 30 to 50 dollars an hour, or even less, um, especially here in the U.S., everyone's kind of like, oh, you're just trying to you know take advantage of these people in other countries. The reality is that some of them live like kings with that kind of money. Um, and and um, especially like in the Philippines, we, we hired this one uh, guy in the Philippines, and this was for a, a WordPress site back when we first started. We were kind of dabbling in WordPress and doing software engineering was kind of a little bit more difficult to acquire when we first started. We're a self-funded company. So we started with like WordPress sites to kind of get people in the door and start building a market. And I remember we were hiring Philippine uh, developers for $20 an hour. And, you know, it was ridiculous, you know, when you think about the $20 an hour rate compared to what a normal developer would charge, you know, like 50, 60 bucks an hour. And it was just because in Philippines, the cost of living is so low that $20 an hour over there provides them a very decent lifestyle. Uh, same thing with India. You'll find on Upwork that you can get in India uh, or people from India for $20 to $40 an hour. Um, and that's another uh, rate that you can deal with. Now, there is a cost additional, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit um, here, but when you're dealing with offshore, there are pros and cons to going offshore versus staying onshore and things like that, and I'll drill down each of them. Um, so if you look at from the pros perspective, um, initially, the, it's very cost effective to go offshore. Um, that's what it looks like on the forefront. 
So when you work with a developer offshore, um, you tend to think initially that the cost is very effective, $20 an hour, $30 an hour, and it seems really, really good. The problem what you're what you're not seeing is what happens after the fact. So initially it looks really good, but let's say I take in America, it takes me 40 hours to accomplish a task. You may be paying $50, $60 an hour in a, in a lower market rate, but then you go to an offshore company or an offshore team and the offshore team is charging $20 an hour. They, but they take 80 hours of time in order to do the same task. The question you have to ask yourself, are you really saving anything? Right? So that, that becomes a question that you're going to have to ask yourself. The second thing to think about is customize. You get customizable requests when you go with an offshore or a contractor. So for instance, let's say, um, I want to build, uh, I want to build an email marketing system. And in that email marketing system, I want to go ahead and send out 10,000 emails per second, right? Uh, from a list that I get from aggregated from another source. Well, when you go with like an offshore contract developer, depending on where you're at. So in the U S obviously we have laws and regulations that, that developers, if they're a good developer, they'll follow those. And so what, what you'll have is, is there are regulations that prevent you from sending emails out without specific criteria. Also there's spamming laws and all this kind of stuff. A good developer, especially one that follows the, you know, the law essentially will come back to you and say, okay, listen, we could build that. The problem is, is that some systems won't allow you to send that many per second. In fact, they might actually throttle your email system. So it doesn't allow you to send that many emails at one time. So you'll run into things like that where an offshore developer, they don't really care um, because they don't, they're not stuck to the same laws and same things that we have to deal with here in America. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, no problem. I'll build it for you. They'll build it for you. And then they'll give you back the application with that on there. So, so it's like a pro and a con there, right? Because the pro is yes, you can make some customized requests without question. They'll be done. But the con is if, is if you launch that application in the United States with where we have spamming laws and things like that, you're going to run into an issue there. Okay. The other thing is, you know, offshore, one of the benefits of offshore is you have just around the clock development. And what I mean by that is, is you may hire a contractor here in America for a certain rate, maybe, let's say $60 an hour, uh, and they work eight hours a day here in America. But then you may also have a 20 to $30 an hour developer out in India. Um, what happens is, is you, you, you actually get the benefit of 24 hours of development, which is not normal. Any type of development you would do in the United States, people don't work 10, 20 hours a day. Um, they may work eight, they may work six, especially when they're uh, local um, member, these people are contractors, they're not working in your office or outside of your office. So they're, they kind of work at their own pace. Um, you could set, you know, set specific standards and things. And I could talk about that later about managing resources. And I do have a section about that, but you're going to, you're going to deal with some of those things. So you may not be able to launch as fast as you want to, because you're dealing with, um, you know, non around the clock. Um, development teams, but on offshore, you do have around the clock. So that, that is a pro that is a pro for an offshore development team. You do, you can have people developing at night. Let's say you're trying to build this product on your off time. You know, you go work your eight hour a day. Well, guess what? At night you can deal with your developers offshore that are actually working on your product. Uh, I did, I worked with a professor once at a college and, and he had come up with this awesome idea to do uh, grammatical um, fixes to um, like student papers. And he built this whole application that was for education that allowed teachers to submit the papers for their students to the system. And then it would automatically make grammatical fixes and changes and stuff. And I'll never forget that he would come into the, the office, uh, into his office every morning 
And the first thing he'd do is he'd grab me out in the hallway and be like, Ray, Ray, um, you know, you should see what I'm building. And, and he was building this system and he had a whole team in Korea that was building this for him. And he would do it, you know, at night while he was working as a professor during the day. And he was able to launch his application within a reasonable amount of time and sell it to the, to the university. Uh, which was a pretty cool thing that he did. So, um, but that's just an example of what happens if you have an offshore team, you can do that around the clock working type thing. Um, another thing is domain knowledge. Um, one of the pros of having an offshore team or a team offshore is some of them have a, a very good domain knowledge of technology, of different technologies, and you have a plethora of technologies you can apply. Um, you know, you can ask them, okay, what technology would be best for this or best for that? And so they may have a very good grasp on it. There, There is a... And it's not really a misconception. It's actually reality. If you look at statistics, a lot of other countries tend to focus more on software engineering and product development and computer programming than we do. In the U.S., even though we do have a lot of these programs that allow for people to learn computer science, it's not a very popular program. And we don't have a lot of technology people um, in the United States, as far as like, you know, comparably to the population. Um, if you actually look at any statistics, our industry is lagging the talent in order to be able to fulfill the amount of jobs that are required for IT right now. As far as cons, and this is just, a, and, I, and I wrote this as like, a, or I put this as like cons for in general, because this is really a generalized cons uh, for when you're dealing with pros and cons with contracted development or offshore development. And so the first thing is individual labor. And so what I mean by that is that when you have individualized labor, when you have a contracted person, you're really you're really dealing with one individual um, and one individual who has limitations and both limitations, both technically, but also limitations as far as time. Um, and those limitations could actually affect your goals of when you want to deliver your product. So that's something to think about there. Um, the other biggest thing, and I'm, and I, this is probably the biggest one, I think, um, because even our clients, you know, we manage some of our clients' offshore resources, and this is the biggest one that we run into, and, and what we have to explain every single time is that when you work with contractors or even offshore, you pay for their time, period. So whether they make a mistake or not, you pay for it. It doesn't sound right, but it is the way it is. Let's say you ask them to build a feature and you say, okay, I want to, let's say I want to send out these emails, right? And you said, I want to send out emails to a thousand people every hour um, to send them a notification. They come back and they build you a system and it only sends 500, right? Even though you were pretty clear that you wanted a thousand, they may have to go back in and make a modification to the system to allow a thousand because they only set it to 500. You may not think so that you deserve that you should be paying for that fix, but you are. Um, they will charge you for that fix, and that's just the way it works. Um, they pay. It's a per hour situation, and it's no questions asked. Um, on a side note, and just to bring this up because we've had this problem before, is uh, when you're dealing with staffing agencies as well. Um, even here in the U.S., they do the same thing. Um, you're paying per hour. Uh, there's a lot of staffing agencies that do contract to hire. Or they do uh, just a yeah contract to hire where you pay you know thirty forty fifty bucks an hour even eighty dollars an hour to a talent uh, that they have and the idea is that they work for you for six months and then after six months you can you can you know hire them on um, it's the same situation with them every hour that they're working you're getting charged for it it doesn't matter that they made a mistake or they weren't sure how the technology worked or they had to do some research you're going to pay for that and so it works when you're dealing with contractors and you're dealing with offshore people. Um, you know, the other issue that we run into and another con that's very important is when these people disappear, they disappear. Um, happens several times, more times than often than not. 
I, I have so many stories of uh, clients that have come to us where they started building a product. Like there was a plumber that I talked to, you, you know, years ago, a couple years ago. I'll never forget that he was building this product that was a phenomenal product. And I think he could have turned around and taken this product and made it the de facto standard product for plumbers all across the nation. And he had a guy that was working on his on his uh, project and uh, contracted. And then one day this guy decided to up and leave and take a job somewhere and then basically stopped working on his project. Now, imagine that all the domain knowledge, all the work that's already gone into it. So this gentleman had already forked over a lot of money um, over time in order to build this product and never actually got the product built um, because this the kid left and he couldn't find another resource that could do it within the budget constraints that he had. Um, and so that's very important to think about. You know, that's why, like me, I'm always going to preach that you probably should use a companies like ourselves or even another contract company. You know, I, I'm always going to be biased to that just because of the fact that I wasn't, I was a contractor once before I started Grata Software. And as a contractor, I do remember I still got contracts from other people that walked away from their contracts. And so I would pick up the slack. Um, and that was one of the things that I did a really good job at, at acquiring clients that basically got left out or that got, um, you know, basically abandoned. And I would pick up their their uh, contracts. In fact, when we first launched Grata, one of our advertisements was we fix the things that people break or we, uh, we was it, we build, uh, we build, we build technology that's been abandoned or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the slogan was, but I remember our marketing uh, person actually had a slogan like that. And a lot of our contracts came from that. When contractors disappear, they just flat out disappear. And sometimes you're not able to get them back. Um, and the other issues, is a lot of times you have no recourse if something's wrong with the code. Um, and if the code is missing, they take the code with them. I did have an investor once run into me and tell me that he went to a whole company in the Ukraine to build his product and they held it for ransom and then he had to pay so much money in order to get his code back. Um, it's little things like that. I mean, it's, it's, they're few and far between. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it's just things you have to think about when you're moving forward with building your product and you need to find the right team for it. The other thing is intellectual property, huge, huge issue. Um, especially if you're a person building like a mobile app that's kind of unique um, and you want to get it out to market, you have to worry about the fact is that company copying all your code um, and going to push that thing to their mobile, to, to the mobile app with their name on it, with their brand on it, um, especially if they come from countries that the U.S. doesn't have much recourse when it comes to copyright infringement. You have to worry about that. That's a big one. Now, as far as managing these resources... And let me, and I'm going through, and this is just, I'm going to go through this really quick. And it's just about like, how do we manage those resources? Um, the first thing that we always tell people is you have to have a good development process. Um, and what I mean by that is you have to have it documented. You have to have it laid out somewhere. Um, for instance, we have a whole process, a documented process of uh, what type of development environment we have, the test environment. If we're going to provide a UAT, um, a UAT is a user acceptance testing um, environment. Um, it's for our clients to be able to see that everything that we built is working as they designed and um, or as they required, and then they can make the approval for us to go to production. Um, and so that's that's kind of, but you have to have some type of a good development process in mind because when you're dealing with uh, uh, either contractors, offshore, um, anything, you, you if you don't have a good development process, things can get really out of whack really quick. 
It could really affect your delivery time. It could affect your product, um, especially the quality. So it's something that you really want to keep in mind. And so, and we do have some templates and some and some ways that we do product development and some types of you know the way we manage our product development, especially with onshore and offshore resources. So, um, if you have any questions on that, definitely hit me up on that. The other thing is to determine whether these the people that you're hiring are more agile or waterfall. Now, the difference between agile and waterfall is agile. You iterate through the product. Um, and I think I talked about this at the beginning, one of my first podcasts about uh, and building an MVP is you're actually in the agile process. You're actually building in iterations like you're building like uh, small components of features first and, and testing it every couple weeks and seeing if how it works. And then you get to make the decision whether you want to continue on with that the way it's being built or do you need to make some modifications so you're so those are decisions that you make as you go um so again you build in iterations where waterfall is a little bit different where you kind of tell the development team this is what i want to build six months later they finish it and then they show it to you and then when they show it to you if there's things you want fixed then you have to do something called a change control and i'll talk about that in a second another thing you want to think about um, when you're managing your resources you want to have good tools especially for version control. Again, like I said earlier, we use GitHub. And so one of our you know, clients were able to see things on GitHub uh, for their project. And every one of our clients we have on GitHub, and we actually track all of their projects on GitHub. And, we, and what the version control allows you to do is it allows you to manage the code. What, what certain, certain, depending on the version control tool that you use, so there's GitHub, there's Bitbucket, there's CloudForge. CloudForge has an SVN, which is an older school um, version controller, but some people still use it. And so you'll have these uh, these different tools that you can use with these version controllers where you can see every commit. Oh, it's called a commit. Every time someone adds code to the, every time a developer adds new code, it, you'll see all the commits. It's logged. It's got a key uh, so that you can always reference back to it. And then if, and it gives you the ability to revert code. If code does, breaks uh, your environment, you can revert back to it. Um, so, and what I mean by environment is your server. Um, so if your developers end up pushing code that ends up breaking your production, which is your client-facing uh, server, then you can revert the code back using version control a lot simpler than actually going back and, and manually doing it. So um, things like that. Um, the other thing you want to think about is a ticketing system or project management system. So things like Basecamp, Jira, which is J-I-R-A, or Trello, which is another one that's really popular. Um, and the ticketing system is all really dependent on your development team. Uh, whether they want to do whether they if they're doing agile if they're really doing sprints uh, which is like sprints with scrum or if they're going to be doing kanban which kanban is kind of like a ticketing system used for uh, i believe it was a toyota and it's a ticketing system that uh, essentially you have a ticket until you run out of tickets or you have tickets till you run out of tickets and when you run out of tickets then then the project manager puts more tickets into the bin essentially um, and this is, it's probably a better way of working, especially if you're working personally with a development team. Um, Scrum with Agile requires more of like a structure uh, with more of like a Scrum manager and things like that. So when you're dealing with a development team and you're an individual, um, probably, uh, probably better to use uh, um, you know, Kanban system uh, for that. Um, communication tools. Um, one of the things that really helps us out here at Grata Software is communication tools. We have Slack, we have HipChat, we have everything. Um, and it's not by choice a lot of times you know a lot of our clients they may have hip chat or slack or some other tool skype um, and so those tools are very important because that's what keeps the constant communication between the development team and the rest of the team of the company um, so those are really important 
And again, I mentioned earlier change control process, and this is part of your whole development process. Uh, and the reason why I mentioned change control process because you'll probably run into this more than anything else during the development. And what I mean by change control is, so let's say you're in the waterfall method. So waterfall method, again, is where you come up with your concept, you come up with your prototype, you come up with everything, you build, uh, you, you tell the development team, this is what I want you to build. And then six months later, they come back and they show you the final product, or at least a, a version of the final product. And then you say, okay, well, maybe I don't want these red buttons, maybe I want it to be green. Or maybe I don't want it to email 1,000 people, I want to email, email 10,000 people. Well, when you make those adjustments, those are what's called change controls because they're no longer part of the original requirements of the application. So now the development team will come back and they'll basically charge you more work uh, for the changes of you know that you're making. Um, the reason why I have this as a way to manage resources is because you need to determine how their change control processes work. You know, for the development team you're hiring, whether it be a company, whether it be offshore, onshore, a contractor. You need to find out what do they do. For instance, at Grata Software, our change controls, because we work in Agile, what we do is every two week sprints, we come back and we show the client the features we worked on for those two weeks. What that does is it gives them the ability to make changes moving forward for all of the things that we're continuing to build moving forward. Now, anything in those two weeks that we've built, if they want to make changes to those, then there's a change control, but it's a smaller change control because it's only on a small subset of features not on the overall grand application. Um, the way I try to explain it to people, it's kind of like building a house. If you ask for a four bedroom, three bath house, um, and I put the foundation, I put the frame, and I put a frame up, and I put the seat, uh, the, the roof on, and uh, I start drywalling, and then you tell me, ooh, I just want to add a guest room, right? Well, now we have to break apart everything we just did, and then just to add that one guest room. That's kind of a, that's a methodology of waterfall. So waterfall is like, I just built almost the whole house and now you're asking for a change for another, another room, right? Where agile is more like I start pouring the foundation and then I ask you, is this foundation okay? And you're like, yeah, so far it looks good. And then I start putting up the framing and then you're like, ooh, I would like another room. Okay, well, that's great. All we have to do is knock out one wall of the framing and then build that second room and then make the, and then finish up the framing that it's, you know. So again, the foundation slab doesn't have to be re-poured. Um, there's no drywall that needs to be ripped out. There's no, uh, you know, ceiling, uh, you know, especially if you have a, a load-bearing wall, there's no like ceiling parts that need to be moved. So, so as you could tell, the agile method is more of like you can make iterations and changes as you go, but the costs are a lot less because you haven't put so much into the project. And so that's kind of the difference between the two. So again, so back to the change control process, that's why you want to take a look at that and see what, what is the change control process like? Um, is it going to cost you a whole bunch to make changes or is it going to cost you very little in little increments? Um, and those are just something that, you know, that is something that, that you uh, want to keep in mind. Okay. And so other things to keep in mind, and this is kind of, we're kind of getting to the end of this podcast uh, is um, the, you know, your comfort, comfort level, you have to really assess the comfort level that you have having your intellectual property on in countries that don't follow the same laws as we do um, in the U S and so you, or even in Europe, you know, so you may want to double check and make sure that you feel comfortable about that. Because like I said, I've, I've actually seen uh, mobile companies who've had their products duplicated and, and launched almost at the same time they did with a different brand on there. And they had no clue that the company was copying their stuff to, to repost essentially, or to repush uh, up to the, uh, the app stores, stores. So you really want to pay attention to that. And you really want to make sure that you're really comfortable with that. 
Um, other, other thing to keep in mind is you want to understand the culture that you're dealing with. Um, if you go to India, India takes a lot of vacations. We have, there's several projects where we'll, or, you know, we do have an Indian team we work with. We'll find out in the middle of the week that they're taking another holiday. And so, um, so that's something you have to contend with, um, especially with certain countries that take holidays for almost every reason. That's just the way it is. You just have to contend with that. So definitely keep that in mind. Also, developers in Russia, you have to also understand their culture. So a lot of uh, Russia, Belarus, uh, Ukraine, they tend to be very forthright, forthcoming. They tend to have a very dry uh, attitude. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I'm just saying that this is just how, from our experience, most of them act. They, they've very, they're straight to the point. Um, they don't beat around the bush. Uh, they're, they're straight up business. So you definitely need to you know, understand, okay, if the, is that the culture I want or do I want a culture to be slightly different? In the Indian culture, very friendly, very family oriented, very nice. Um, they tend to say a lot of things that don't mean anything when it comes to, you know, um, when they're doing business with you. It's a, a lot of times they'll say a bunch of stuff and then you're like, okay, well, what did you mean? And it's, you know, they'll use a lot of words. Um, and so you have to contend with that, especially when you're giving requirements or whatever. Um, you know, you'll give a requirement about something and then they'll give you a, a two paragraph story um, that basically tells you that, no, they can't do what you're asking. And so we've found that happens a lot. Um, you know, again, that's just one of the things you have to contend with. And then the one thing you really have to pay attention to is probably the most important thing is that most of the freelancers and most of the contractors that you're hiring, not companies per se, um, companies too, actually, now that I think about it, but they're always working on several projects. And so you really have to determine, you know, when do you need your project done and can you handle someone working on several projects at once? Um, because what they're doing is they're time box you to a certain amount of hours per week even though you need them to work 40, they may just time box you to 20. And because they're working on two other projects that are 20 and they may be working all the way around the clock. So you have to think about all those things because the quality of work on your project may be affected by the amount of work they already have going on with other projects. So that's just something to keep in mind. That's one of the biggest things that we found um, when we're working with a lot of contractors and offshore people um, that they do have so much so much work going around that sometimes you'll explain something to them and then they'll totally forget what you said. Uh, they'll do the work and they'll mess up on a feature completely because they didn't pay attention to what you said originally uh, because they were probably thinking about the five other projects that they have going on. Um, so those are kind of things you have to think about. Okay. So again, you know, like I said, it's uh, when you when you get into that point where you're going to build your project and you're going to build your MVP, you know, you do have to pay attention to things like this. You know, you have to pay attention to your cost. And then on top of the paying attention to your cost, the pros and cons of, you know, what are the what are the benefits and what are the, you know, the downfalls of going with an onshore offshore team or, uh, you know, go, you know, uh, contractors specifically. Um, you also have to take it, take into account how you're going to manage those resources, right? Um, and make sure that you manage those resources effectively because you are essentially the person that's going to be driving these people to build that product that you want. And, uh, and then lastly, you know, you have to keep those things in mind as far as culture, the intellectual property, things like that. Um, and, uh, and whether the developers are working on multiple projects. So those are all things you got to keep in mind for that. You know, I, I'll, I'll always say that you got to hire a team like us, right? Um, so, um, cause what we do is we manage those resources for you, especially if you're, uh, if you're building a product and, and you're looking at, um, you know, getting it done in an efficient amount of time and you want to find out exactly how much it's going to cost you and, 
and all these kind of things. It's really, really beneficial to go with companies like ourselves who actually do this on a daily basis and know how to manage the resources in order to make these projects whole. But uh, but again, if, if costs, if the overall cost is too much to bear, um, at least you have an option and you have at least a guideline here that can help you decide, okay, how am I going to move forward with this? And, um, and, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions either. Um, like I said, you can definitely hit me up on Twitter at rortega1. Um, so that concludes this podcast. Again, this is episode seven. Tune into the next podcast. I think we kind of concluded here um, the MVP uh, process, um, at least from a high level perspective. The next podcast, we're going to, we'll start, you know, talking more about just technology in general and how businesses are using technology uh, to improve, uh, you know, their bottom line or to build new products. And so that's kind of what we work with on a daily basis. And it kind of gives us the opportunity to, to, you know, not only promote the companies that we work with, but also, you know, to, to give you guys some more feedback as to, or some more information as to how technology can really help you out. So thank you for listening to the podcast and, uh, and I'll see you in the next one.